Mm. Uh, I just want to confess before we begin uh, the tremendous, uh, I think, weight of the area of Scripture that we're heading into. Um, I I have told some folks in in the church and and just discussed this briefly with them that that I feel that the closer we get to the cross, um, the the less ability I have to to speak to uh, to what is going on in this passage. And and it's not that there are not things to say. It's just that I I feel that there is a sense that we are, we are treading on holy ground. Um, and so I just I pray uh, that as I pray this morning that, that God would be with me as I, as I speak, I, I pray that you would pray the same thing, um, that, that, he would, um, that he would shepherd, uh, because I, I feel, I, feel I, I think rightly, very unworthy. Um, the Apostle John left us these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, as we read, we, we are listening to the, to the very words of God speaking into this place. So picking up in John chapter 18, starting in verse 12, the scriptures say, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire, and because it was cold, they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temples, and in the temple where the Jews all come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we pray, Lord, this morning, Father, before a word is spoken, I pray that we would remember the grace that comes through the cross. Lord, that we would center in our minds that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, that our sins are paid for on the cross, that we are justified, made right in your sight by his resurrection. Lord, that we are truly free from our sins. I pray that we would know your grace first and foremost, so that nothing that I say this morning, no words that are spoken about how we are called to live, 
might give us a sense that what we do earns our salvation. Lord, we are saved because of your grace. We know that we are right before you, that we are forgiven because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, because of his work and the benefits of that work appropriated by our faith. That is the ground of our salvation. And yet at the very same time, Lord, you call upon us to live a particular way. And because you have blessed us so greatly, we ought to respond to those blessings with seriousness, with hearts chilled by warnings, gladdened by your blessings, encouraged, Lord, by the benefits that await us in your presence, of which you are chief. You are the greatest treasure we could ever hope to enjoy. We pray that we would center our minds on this as we hear from the word and we hear the demands that you call us to this morning, Lord. We pray your grace would guard our hearts from ever believing that what we do secures our salvation. We pray that you would encourage us, prod us free from silence and denying you in a thousand ways each day. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I was not familiar with the concept of um, how, how certain articles of clothing get destroyed uh, before I got involved in a relationship with the girl who is now my wife. Um, I, I did not understand that, that there were certain things that happen uh, which mean that an article of clothing is, is going to be completely useless in a, in a, in a short amount of time. Um, it, it started with discovering the concept of the run in the stocking, you know? Um, I'm like, what's the big deal? Why are you so upset? You know, you, so you got snagged a little bit. I mean, I get snagged all the time. You know, I'm, uh, you know what's, what's the big deal? Because well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't grip the fact in my mind that those stockings would very soon be completely unusable. Um, I will continue to wear a sweater as the, the threads are starting to, uh, to come undone and there's a giant hole here or a hole in the neck or uh, a fray in the bottom. And all of a sudden these articles of clothing will suddenly disappear from my wardrobe. Um, and I'll say, where's my sweater? And she'll say, do you mean the one with the paint all over it? Yeah. And she's like, it's been gone a while. Why? It's fraying. It's coming apart. And that means it can't be a functional part of your wardrobe anymore. Uh, the same thing is true of our souls. There are sins and things that we can trip up on that yank and tear at us and tear at our character. And if we are not careful, the minutest sin, the smallest deviation from God's law, if we cherish it and defend it and don't forsake it and repent of it, can lead to the undoing of our character. God calls us to lives of integrity, of living up to his demands. God lays out a pattern for life and he says, this is the way, walk in it, follow me. And we are called to open ourselves, submit to him, not give place to sin. And it's not just because God is a giant cosmic killjoy who wants to ruin our fun and frustrate us. It's because he knows that deviating from his way and his character will lead to an unraveling which will destroy us if left unchecked. We're going to see that this morning as we compare the character of Jesus and the character of Peter as Jesus goes before the high priest, Annas. Now let's, we're going to break our, our, our text down into four sections this morning. The first, I just want to talk very briefly about the trials before the high priests. This is in verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. We'll talk about that very, very quickly, and then we're going to look at three other areas, uh, and they'll, they'll take some length. 
But you'll notice, if you're familiar with the other Gospels, that the high priest is referred to here as Annas in verse 14. They led him to Annas. And then it says that he is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Why is that important? Many people will try to trip you up in your reading of the Gospels, and they'll say that there are contradictions, that the name of the high priest changes, or that the chronology is not right. This is not true. The high priest that's featured in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the trials that are depicted there are the trial before Caiaphas, who is the official high priest. But as you know, living in America today, there are those who are in charge, right? And then there are those who are really in charge, right? The people who have the money make the rules, right? And that's the golden rule. The one with the gold makes the rules. There is this guy named Annas, who in 6 AD became high priest. And he reigned as high priest until, as high priest until 15 AD. And then the guy who came before Pilate, the governor of Jerusalem, his name is Valerius. He deposed Annas because he was a troublemaker. But this guy was loved by the people. Sharp guy, intelligent, and he managed to get five of his sons-in-law made high priest. And so he has always retained control. And so it is only natural that when Jesus is taken, remember, he has trashed the court of the temple he has offended the religious leaders time and time again. He is drawing people away from temple worship and they're focusing on him and his teaching. It's only natural that this guy should get a trial. He gets a run at Jesus before Jesus goes on to the official high priest. And so we're going to see him go before Annas. The trial before Caiaphas, Matthew, Luke, Mark, but skipped over in this gospel. That's it. Trials before the high priests. Second, we're going to examine and look at that run in Peter's character, the snag, the beginning of the tear. Let's, let's look at uh, verses 15 through 18, and we're going to see the run in Peter's character. Peter is one who loves Jesus. He loves Jesus intensely. Jesus has transformed his life. He does not know or remember or care about life before Jesus. You'll remember in the upper room, he says, I will never betray you. I will die for you. And so Peter and another disciple, you'll see in verse 15, follow Jesus as he's being led off to be tried. Uh, all the other disciples run. Peter and another disciple follow Jesus. Now, the first disciple enters into the court of the high priest. He goes into the house. Imagine his house like this, right? Not like your house, right, where you lock the front door, you lock the back door, you, you've got the gate closed and nobody's going to go on your property or you're going to dial 911, right? That's the way our households function. Back then, the high priest's compound was a big area. It had a courtyard. The courtyard was generally open. People could come in and knock on the house door. And there were probably multiple houses in there. The high priest probably lived in one house. The real high priest probably lived in another. There was probably a place where all of their household, their servants lived. And so it would be very common to have people passing in and out. The guy bakes the bread, he delivers the bread. The guy catches the fish, he delivers the fish. And then there's a steward of the house who pays things out. So it would be very common for people to come in and out. It's also very common to have somebody tending that gate. And this gate is tended by a girl, probably about 14 years old, maybe even younger. By the way, when Peter gets let out of prison in the book of Acts and he goes and he knocks on the door of uh, of of the, the, the house where he goes, there's a little girl who answers the door named Rhoda. Or maybe it's Rhoda's house. But a girl answers the door. It's very common. Okay. So, the first disciple enters. He knocks on the door. He is known. Maybe he's a family member with the high priest. Maybe he's an acquaintance. Um, and this is John, the nameless author of the gospel. He doesn't want to be focused on here. He, he keeps himself anonymous as he, as he writes the gospel. But he goes in and he notices that Peter has not been admitted. So he goes back to the servant girl and he says, that guy's okay. He's with me. Let him in. And so the girl opens the door and as Peter is Walking in, he snags. His character begins to run aground. And this is not a total catastrophe here. This is not the explosion of his character, but it's just that tiny pull, that little wrinkle that sets his whole life on a course 
of destruction at this moment. Think back to the garden. Jesus had warned Peter that very night. This is Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Jesus says to Peter, watch and pray, Peter. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, Peter, but the flesh is weak. Now, he's not just speaking in general about spirits and flesh. He's saying to Peter, your spirit is willing. Your flesh is weak. So watch and pray. Jesus had warned him. Was he ready? A little Greek grammar here for you, okay? She asks this question of Peter. As he's passing through the door, she says, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Are you one of Jesus' disciples? You're not one of his disciples, are you? The question begins with the Greek word may, which means that the expected answer is no. Now, anybody who has spent any time in a family knows that dad or mom have a way of asking questions that have yes and no answers at the end of them, right? You're going to go upstairs and go to bed, aren't you? Yes, I am, right? There will be trouble if you don't. Are you going to stay awake, play your guitar, beat up on your brothers? No, I am not, right? We grammatically can ask questions. This is the question she says to Peter. She's like, you're not one of that guy's disciples, are you? Peter is in the clear. He's going in. I mean, there's, she doesn't think he's one of his disciples. She's just kind of asking the question because John had already gone through and John is known to the high priest and they know that John is one of Jesus' disciples. But not you. You're not one of his disciples, are you? Couldn't be. And he says... I am not. And this is the snag. This is the pull in Peter's character. When your stocking gets snagged, right? This is the way it used to play out with my wife. My wife would be like, ugh, my stocking. And I'm like, what? What's the big deal? You're, you're fine. She's like, they're ruined. Like, it's just this tiny little bit of nothing. No one's going to notice. Just like turn away from people, you know? I mean, it's just this tiny little spot. But she knows, and you guys know this too, that that tear will widen. So it's off to the drugstore before the wedding reception to get more stockings. Ladies, you've, you've been in this place. Gentlemen, drive your wife if she wants new stockings. Just do it. So important. Peter's first mistake as he hits this pull in his character is that it's just a little lie. Just a little one. He, but he's got to gain access. He wants to be with his master. Surely that is a good motive. And so he speaks this lie to gain access. It's not really a formal denial, is it? I mean, she's not important. She's just the little girl who tends the gate. I'm going to share four quotes from Matthew Henry this morning. Uh, if you don't know Matthew Henry, let me encourage you. Sharp guy. Uh, I think he is, he is the Christian fortune cookie guy. Right? If there were a guy locked in a factory making Christian fortune cookies, it would be this guy, Matthew Henry. Um, he wrote a one-volume commentary on the Bible, which you can get. And, and it's, it's a good commentary. Sometimes it's a little ancient English, hard, hard to understand, but, but the, there's good stuff there. And he will help you see each and every passage right, I believe. Uh, if you're just looking for a single one-volume commentary, it's good. And since it's very, very, very old, it's often very, very, very inexpensive, which is good. This is what Matthew Henry says here, the Christian fortune cookie guy. He says that the sin of lying is a fruitful sin. One lie needs another to support it. Lies beget lies. Peter is deceived by the sinfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it has been called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Peter was not watching and praying. He was just 
storming along, following Jesus. And he runs headlong into this trap. Again, well, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him. And then he told him to watch and pray. And Peter had been prepared to die for Jesus. We saw last week that he drew his sword and he cut off Malchus' ear in the garden. He was ready to die for Jesus, but he was not ready to confess his allegiance to this servant girl. He wasn't watching and praying. Matthew Henry says, those who by sin think to help themselves out of trouble do but entangle themselves all the more. Dare to be brave because the truth will come out. Verse 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Here's mistake number two. What does he do once he gets in? Where does he go? We have no idea where John is. But Peter then goes and warms up by the fire, standing next to the servants of the high priests and the officers to warm himself. Let's, let's look at two different dimensions of this mistake. First, who are these people? They're the people who came to arrest Jesus in the garden. The servants and the officers of the high priest. And now he's standing with them around the fire. I think the second element of this is that he's giving into creature comfort. Peter, watch and pray. The spirit is willing. You want to do the right thing, but your flesh is weak. When something or anything becomes more important than our character, we are heading into trouble. How often are you willing to steamroll over people or excuse bad behavior because you're hungry? Miss a meal by an hour? Start to get a little grouchy, right? Because feeding the self becomes more important than living a godly life. You've got to be careful when we make feeling good more important than living godly. Peter sought out warmth. He sought out acceptance. He sought out a crowd that he could blend into. He kept silent in fear and then put himself in the wrong environment. Peter, we, you, know, you, may, you may be saying, well, what could he have done? What should he have done? He could have owned his discipleship. He could have said, I am a disciple. I am a follower of Jesus. I'm prepared to die for him. And then gone right to him. And if he had, I believe he would have learned how to suffer. Jesus had told his disciples that suffering and pain and rejection at the hands of the world was coming, but they saw only prosperity and peace. They thought he was going to inaugurate a kingdom and they were going to be arrayed on thrones. Jesus said, yeah, it's true, just not yet, not for a while, not for a long while. Many of us today expect only prosperity and peace. And so we are easy targets for temptation. Are you frustrated with some of your failures, perhaps, in the Christian life? Maybe you need to rethink your expectations. What are we actually expecting? Failure to share the gospel and to stand up in your school or in your job or in your family and to say, this is what I believe, this is what I must do, may be connected with the idea that it's bad to ever feel ashamed or it's bad to be ostracized. Peter's example teaches us that it is better to be mocked and to not be ashamed of him. Now, John, very creatively, I think in a, in a very uh, cinematic way, now cuts away from this scene that's before us as Peter is now safe and warm. He's gotten into the, into the courtyard and he's, he's safe among the crowd, right? He's good, just a little, little tiny lie. Now he's secure, he's, he's on the scene. Now John cuts away to Jesus' strong 
confession in verses 19 through 24. You know, we think that there's only one betrayal that goes on here, but there's actually two. There's, there's Peter, who should have owned Jesus as king, but there's a second group of people who betray him, who should have acknowledged him as their Lord and Master. And they betray their very office. It says that the high priest, in verse 19, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Why does it always come down to this with religious people? Tell me about your numbers. Tell me about your doctrine. How many, how many people have you got? And is it, is it working? Right? This is, the pastors are like this. They get into a room. Um, teachers are like this. How many books have you sold? How many people do you have? And is it working? I think Caiaphas, I mean, Annas here, is afraid of insurrection. He's afraid of, of what could happen if he takes this man. What will the people do? How will they react? And so he wants to know how many. What are you teaching them? Notice what Jesus does. First and foremost, while his flesh is on the line, his very life is about to be taken from him, he protects his disciples. Verse 20, Jesus answered the high priest and he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple. I have said nothing in secret. He diverts the attention totally to himself. You know, in a, an action movie, he might say, oh, my disciples are all over the place. They've got the building surrounded. You might want to send your guards out there and, and deflect it, but Jesus doesn't do any of that. His disciples are precious to him. He is going to stand and to protect them. Jesus replied to the high priest, he says, I spoke openly, I spoke publicly, I held nothing back. I spoke in public areas like synagogues. I gathered in the large teaching area in the temple and I spoke and said things like, truly, truly, I say to you, I hid nothing from anybody. So if you want to know what I've taught, go and ask the people that I've taught. Now that may seem to us as entirely rude or wrong for him to speak that way. And as a matter of fact, in verse 22, we see that the guard thinks that that is the wrong way to speak to the high priest as well. And he says to Jesus, is that how you answer the high priest? And he smacks him across the face. The Greek word there is, a, is an open-handed, hard slap. He strikes Jesus. Is that how you answer the high priest? How dare you? Force, by the way, is not the way of God's kingdom. Evil schemes and intimidates and cowers. But we'll see Jesus model what the truth does. Truth stands and speaks openly and without sham. Verse 23, Jesus points out the illegality and the irregularity of what they're doing. He points out to them that according to Jewish law, this is, by the way, what he's, what he's saying in verse 23. He says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? What they're doing, according to, to Jewish cultural law, there were no trials at night. People were innocent until they were proven guilty. And people were not forced to be self-incriminating. Instead, witnesses should have been Produced. And so he says, if I've done wrong, testify. Why are you hitting me? Jesus is teaching us as his followers a valuable lesson about how we ought to approach suffering and evil. Remember what is said before the foot washing in John chapter 13? It says that Jesus, knowing that all things had been given into his hand, knowing that he was going back to the Father. He knew that he was sovereign. He knew that the Father was going to give him all authority. He knew that he could do anything that he wanted. And what is the first thing that he does? He washes his disciples' feet. Jesus knows that he will rise from the dead. He knows that he's sovereign and powerful. And so here, he teaches us how to handle evil. You might ask, why does Jesus not turn the other cheek here, right? Isn't that what he taught? If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. One scholar helpfully pointed out that to turn the other cheek without bearing witness to the truth is not the fruit of moral resolution, but the terrorized cowardice of the wimp. It would be one thing for Jesus to say, go ahead and hit me. But it's another thing totally for him to stand there 
and to calmly speak the truth. He is turning the other cheek. He's leaving himself fully in their hands and testifying to the truth. It's interesting. Peter makes his own comment in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Isn't it interesting that in this cut, between the two scenes of Peter avoiding suffering, betraying his Lord, he sees Jesus giving a perfect example of how to handle suffering and how to withstand evil. Peter was unwilling, but he learned his lesson. To this suffering, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is a hard truth, folks. I don't, I don't say this to you this morning as if it should be easy, but this is a hard truth. It requires our prayer, our meditation, and our study. That when we suffer, we are to bear evil with good character and continue to trust one who judges justly. That is our Father. What is our response when we feel that we or someone else has been wronged? Doesn't our culture train us to be angry and indignant? You've trampled on my rights. You've oppressed me. How dare you give me a ticket? You know? Driving downtown last week, cop pulls me over. I'm going 43 in a 30 mile an hour road. I'm like, who makes a road 30 miles an hour? 25? You know, 45? You know, did you know you were? I was like, no, I didn't know how fast I was going, officer. He said, against my better judgment, I'm going to let you go. If he's listening, I say, I say thank you. You know, if he listens ever on, on, on the CD, thank you for letting me go. Um, but, but my first instinct is the nerve of you pulling me over. Our culture trains us to react to wrong and to say that's not right. Notice what Jesus teaches though. Self-defense and being angry and indignant do not go hand in hand. He spoke the truth and did not rage. Jesus is not angry here. He just speaks the truth. He remains calm. And he just presents them with the truth. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why are you hitting me? James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Matthew Henry helpfully says, our resentment of injuries must never be passionate. He reasoned with the man that did him injury, and so may we. He did not revile, but showed the meekness of wisdom. We're called as Christians, we are allowed to defend ourselves, but we are not to avenge ourselves. Romans 13, 4 says that the government is our avenger. You may say in your heart, well, what if I can't trust the government? You can trust your father who judges justly. We can resent suffering. We can dislike it. We cannot want it. We're not masochists. But it must be a rational resenting, not a passionate resenting. You want to make sure that you're rational about your suffering. You know why? Because when other Christians, your brothers and sisters, come to you and they say, here's what God might be teaching you in your trial. Or here's what I learned in my trial. We may say something like, you have no idea what I'm going through. How dare you speak to me like that? How dare you try to comfort me when you have never experienced anything like this? But meek wisdom says, what can I learn? Think of Job. Think of Paul, 
who suffered. And in Colossians, he said he was filling up the afflictions of Christ. He was suffering in the presence of the New Testament church, the very sufferings that Jesus had suffered so he could demonstrate to them how a Christian should suffer. He didn't choose to suffer. He suffered because God ordained suffering for him. And so when he suffered, they saw what it was like for Jesus to suffer, but they saw Paul suffering. We need to make sure that we suffer rationally and not passionately so that when others look to us, they'll see what it looks like when a Christian suffers. A Christian. Christian means little Christ. We want people to see the glory and the purpose of God in our suffering, not just our anger. Jesus knows that to rage here does no good. He also knows that if there is no cross, there is no salvation. You notice the end of the story here. As Jesus speaks, there is no answer given. It says then, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. He's done investigating Jesus, wants nothing more to do with him, sends him off. And so they begin to take Jesus from the chamber that he's in and they move him to where Caiaphas is and you'll see those trials in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, we cut back. We move the camera back out into the courtyard, and we see now the full unraveling of Peter's character in verses 25 through 27. This is tragic. Don't judge him, though, because I feel so often we can find ourselves in his shoes. Meanwhile, back at the fire, verse 25, we have another May question asked, beginning with, with that word, expecting a no answer. It says, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. He's kind of standing there. He's, he's feeling good, you know. They're not quite roasting marshmallows and hot dogs, but they're, they're standing around the fire, and maybe he feels like he's blending in. And it says, so, uh-oh, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? You know, they're like, maybe they're noticing his Galilean accent, you know. He looks a little sweaty, maybe he's roughed up, you know, maybe he keeps looking over to where the trial is, you know, going on. And so they say, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Expecting the answer, no. And he says, I am not. And here is where he unravels, where everything comes undone. One lie begets another. Tolerating sin means that sin becomes tolerable, and the trap that the devil has laid for him is Sprung. It says in verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, wait a minute, didn't I see you in the garden with him? You know, maybe in the flickering firelight, he hadn't quite recognized him, but now he hears his voice. Now he sees his face. Now he looks and sees the sword on his belt. He sees, and he's like, no, you are one of his disciples, aren't you? And it says, Peter again denied it. John knows that we've read the other Gospels. John knows that the reader has read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we know that what Peter does at this point is he begins to emit loud, furious oaths and curses, saying things to take the suspicion off of himself. It's not me saying things we might say in our culture, I swear on my mother's grave. I am not one of his disciples. Luke 22, verse 61 says, at that moment, Jesus looked at Peter. As they're passing him from one chamber, from the chamber where Annas is to the chamber where Caiaphas is, they're moving him. Great painting, by the way, from church history. You can see Peter kind of looking down and Jesus being brought between these two passages. It's probably exactly the way it happened. It says, at that moment, as he screams, I am not, the two of them lock eyes. And the rooster crows. And Peter flees from the courtyard. The other Gospels say that he wept and he mourned and he grieved. Could this sort of thing happen to you or me? Probably not this exact situation. This will never happen again. 
But it can happen that we can deny Christ in the way that we live. And I would go so far as to say it probably has. God shows us tremendous grace in the gospel. We should not judge Peter unrighteously. We should not expect more from him than he can possibly give. But God gives us grace in the gospel. He gives us the ability to follow his commands by the power of the Holy Spirit who's given to us. And so we need to understand that we are saved by grace. Yes, but we are also called to stand and like Jude says, contend for the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. If we judge Peter wrongly at this point, everything that I'm going to say might sound just like I'm saying be good, and that's not what I'm saying. I don't want to compare Peter to Jesus, because that's not a fair comparison. Someone has said, in a sense, Peter could not die for Jesus until Jesus had died for Peter, because there was no power to stand against sin in him yet. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, though, Looking back at the Old Testament scriptures, I don't think it's unfair to apply this to this situation, says all these things happened for our benefit. We look back at Peter and we say, what happened? How can we make sure that we don't deny Christ by our lifestyle? Just take a couple minutes. I want to analyze this from three different angles and then we'll close. First, Peter is shown standing with the world, warming himself by the fire. Look at how the attack unfolds. Peter was told by Jesus in the upper room, Jesus said, Satan wants to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you so that when you are revived, when, you, when your faith is recovered, when you, when you catch your footing again, you will encourage your brothers Watch and pray, he told him in the garden. Look at the slight attack. The, the denial came not in some big showdown, but in the form of a servant girl at the door. You're not one of his disciples. He told the first lie. There's this slight attack. We deny God in our lives, not in miles. You're not just going to suddenly find yourself committing some great apostasy or denial or gross immorality. It starts in inches. It's the little things neglecting your time in the word, failing to pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Notice the speedy surrender. He was taken off guard. He did not watch and pray. And this girl catches him off guard and he surrenders the entire battle. And then he gets onto the slippery slope. His good morals are corrupted by bad company. Matthew Henry again, last time for him this morning. He says, as we choose our people, we choose our praise, and we govern ourselves accordingly. He put himself in the presence of worldly people, and he set himself up to be judged by them. He fit into this crowd, and so he was going to live up to their expectations for him. I love this from Matthew Henry. He says, those who warm themselves with evildoers grow cold toward good people. And those that are fond of the devil's fireside are in danger of the devil's fire. Oh. Satan worked. Here's the second angle. I want to look at this. Satan worked at the weakest link. When Peter gave into one temptation, the devil ran him down. In the upper room, Peter was taken in by the design of the devil. His pride was so exalted, Jesus said, you will, no, first he said, I am going to die. And Peter said, never, never is this going to happen to you. I will die for you. No, Peter, you'll deny me three times. His pride set him up for failure. Are we exalting ourselves in our home, on our job? in our own mind, or are we embracing humility? If we're not humble, we're setting ourselves up for failure. In the garden, Peter was overwhelmed by the weakness of the flesh. Jesus told him, watch and pray, and yet he slept. His fatigue led to anger and to passionate striking out against the servant of the high priest. Instead, what he should have done was trusted Jesus. 
and held his peace and made a rational decision about what to do. Instead, he just stumbled along. Finally, in the courtyard, he gave in to the pressure of the world. Fear of harm. And possibly just fear of ridicule. When he should have fully and confidently put himself in God's care. Jesus had assured Peter that he had eternal life. That he was clean. That anyone who comes to the Father will not be cast out. And yet Peter gives in to the world's pressure here. So let me challenge us all this morning. Are you being watchful in prayer? Are you being watchful in the word? Or are you setting yourself up for that tiny pull that will put you in a position to deny him? And not just in a crowd, perhaps, but in your very lifestyle. Are you prepping yourself for slight attacks and slippery slopes each and every day? Jesus says in Matthew 10, this chilling warning that we must take to heart. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Are you taking the time each and every day to preach the gospel to yourself and to say, I am saved By grace, I am saved by Christ's work on the cross. I can do no good thing in and of myself, but it's it's not me who's doing these good things, but Christ who's in me, he strengthens me, and I know what I need to do. Are you doing that? Are you taking the time to get ready to go out into a battle? Or are you just walking out every morning like you live in a world that's at peace? The devil wants to sift you like wheat. Ask yourselves these questions. Am I denying him by affection? What's truly important to you? Are you allowing the self or your values or some idols to have first place? Do people know you first as a Christian or as a sports fan? Do people know you first as a Christian or as a conservative? Are politics taking more of a place in your life than the gospel? Are there other doctrines or ideas or values that are more important than Jesus' person and work on the cross on your behalf? Does anything hold a higher place of affection in your heart and your mind? And and if, if you're thinking, my children, my husband, my wife, if you put God in his proper place, all those other relationships will work out. Are you denying him, second of all, by your behavior? What does your calendar and your checkbook prove about who you trust and who you proclaim? Are you spending the time in the word and in prayer? Or are you neglecting the word and prayer? What are those early morning hours and late evening nights filled with? Are you denying him by neglect of belief? When you hear the word on Sunday or in small group or you hear it on the radio, are you saying, yes, I believe the word. God's word is so good and I want, I want that to be true. I, I believe it and I'm going to live as though it is true. I'm going to apply it. Are you denying him in the words that you say? If you were judged by the things that came out of your mouth or your Facebook updates, would people say that's a Christian? the attitude that you model. Finally, are you denying him by your confession? What do your words say about you? I'm under the gun here as well. Are you bearing witness when you're out and about? How many waitresses escape the gospel? How many waiters don't hear How many people do we have an opportunity to share with and yet we don't do it? Are you speaking with unclean or worldly words? If any of these strike home, first know that God is merciful and trust in the cross. Peter fell, but Jesus restored him. But then he challenged him. And Peter went out 
and never denied him again. Make every effort in the spirit with the power of the word and through prayer to arm yourself and take your stand each and every day. May we find refuge in the cross. May we proclaim his name even in suffering and bear his reproach. God's glory and love and blessings are more precious than anything the world has to offer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Lord, we want to take the time to confess any sin. Lord, some of us may, by error or by action or in fear, may have denied you in some area. Lord, a particular coworker, perhaps, or a situation in our lives where we were put upon. We were put in a situation and we could have spoken up and we didn't. And, and, and Lord, that, the, the burden of that just feels horrific. Father, I pray that you would assure us of your grace in the cross. Lord, you forgive all sins through Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would not have a false sense of guilt, but that we would see from these situations, Lord, how it is that we are to bear witness. Lord, may we never cherish any sin that would lead to denying you. Father, may we always lay those sins down. May we lift up the truth of your word each and every day, Lord, in all that we do. Father, I pray that we would be those who watch and pray, who stand guard and who trust in your word. Father, in a time of testing, may we not fail from neglect, but may we be prepared and ready and armed to suffer by preparing our hearts and minds in the mornings and in the evenings. Father, we know that your grace is great. You do not expect perfection, but you do call us to stand. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who never failed, not once, who is perfect in your sight and who earns perfect righteousness for us. We thank you for the cross and for the grace that you give to each one who call out to you for forgiveness of sins. We thank you for your love and your mercy, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.